Let's pray. Lord, you have paid the ultimate price for our sin. You, the sinless one, took upon yourself all of our sin. You bore the wrath, and we stand forgiven. Lord, I pray that today, as we go through this passage, Scripture, Lord, that you remind us that you will enable us to be enamored again by your mercy to us. May your Spirit teach us now, we pray. And even more importantly, not just teach us, but help us, Lord, to live it out. Help us, Lord, to be doers of your word and not just hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've turned the corner. 2020 is behind us, and 2021 is just beginning. The last day of 2020, uh, we talked about hope, and and we did that as well the first uh, Lord's Day of 2021. And hope, as we remember, is the absolute conviction that whatever God says is going to happen will happen. It cannot be any other way. It's impossible for it to be otherwise. Now, I had several great opportunities to play catch with the Lord this week. If you know what I'm talking about, go back and listen to the messages of the last couple of weeks. You know, as Kitty says, whenever I preach a message, the Lord has a way of putting me and us into positions where we're actually living it out. Well, giving the Lord my troubles, casting them on Him, and my anxieties as well, and experiencing the Lord's peace given back to me, well, there's no greater way of handling the things that life throws at me and all the problems that I have had. And I also thank the Lord for being able to throttle grip my thoughts. And again, if you know what throttle grip is, go back and listen. It's a great thing. And, you know, we think about all the things that have happened this week, you know, the aftermath of the certification of the Electoral College. We think about the riot in D.C., horrendous, horrific stuff there. And with all of that, I continue to discover that I don't have to get wrapped around the axle about anything. See, the Lord has strengthened me in very difficult circumstances this week. And I praise God. To God be the glory. But now, let's do a little catch-up to see where we were in the Corinthian correspondence because now we're back into 2 Corinthians. Remember how Paul got to the place where he found it necessary to write the letter that we're studying? What we call 2 Corinthians is actually the fourth letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. How involved he was in their lives. He loved them dearly. Now, let me offer a quick timeline. Paul initially visited Corinth, and God commissioned him to start a church in that most wicked of cities in the Roman Empire. It was like the Las Vegas of the first century. In fact, to Corinthianize carried with it the idea of rampant sexual immorality. Now, Paul labored in Corinth for about a year and a half. And by the power of God, a church was established there. And after Paul moved on to do more missionary work from Corinth, he caught wind of their spiritual condition. He sent the Corinthians two letters to kind of deal with these things. Unfortunately, the first one that he wrote is lost. We don't have that one. But the second one that he wrote down is what we call 1 Corinthians. And as we studied that letter a long while back, remember when we went through that? We discovered some marvelous truth. We talked about disunity 
and other sins and how to deal with those. Paul also taught them, and us as well, things like what a godly marriage looks like, church order and discipline, and even the resurrection of the body. He sent the letter to the Corinthians, confident that the Lord was going to use it to help them and help us be the church God called them and us to be. Well, at the end of 1 Corinthians, Paul informed them of his travel plans. He was going to visit them, and so they needed to get ready for his visit, in part so that he could collect the money that they had promised to give so that they could feed the the poor saints in Jerusalem because there was a famine going on. And what a great gesture to show the unity of the body of Christ, to have a largely Gentile Christian congregation supply the needs for those in a largely Jewish congregation. Unity among Christians has always been a priority with the Lord. But Paul's plans did not work out the way he wanted. He had planned on visiting them a certain time, but it didn't work out that way. And there's a reason for that. Because as news often does through the grapevine, are you familiar with that? <laughs> I think we all are. Paul got further word about the disunity in the church in Corinth that he warned them about. And so it showed itself now in a very ugly way. The disunity kind of kind of morphed and metastasized into now false teachers had infiltrated the church, and they were trying to take over the church. And at least one leader in the church in Corinth was captivated by these false teachers. He was being deceived and was leading other people astray in all this. So how did Paul respond to the deception? Well, he dropped what he was doing. He quickly changed his travel plans, and he dealt with the issue in person. He arrived on the scene, spiritual guns blazing, taking no prisoners. He was a man who was full of the zeal of the Lord. And then thinking that some things were in some semblance of order, Paul left, and he continued his mission's work in Ephesus until he received a report that things were not any better, but they were actually getting worse. And so Paul sat down, and he wrote a third letter to them. It was scathing, impassioned, tear-stained, calling upon the church to take care of this leader, to exercise church discipline who was tearing down the church. Well, sending this letter by the hand of Timothy, Paul waited for some kind of a response. He was heavy-hearted over this, and he he was weighed down by all that happened. His labor in the Lord might have been in vain after all, and he was so afraid of that. He was in sorrow over this. Because the last thing that Paul wanted to see was the church having become a haven of false teaching after it had been built upon the true foundation, the gospel of Christ. One day, news came. Great news. Church discipline was indeed exercised, and the leader repented of his sin. However, the other leaders, they were zealous, all right. They were so zealous that after that leader repented, they continued to shun this man. And it was causing a lot of sorrow, a lot of grief. And so what did Paul do? He sat down to write another letter, a fourth one, which we call 2 Corinthians. Remember how Paul told the church to forgive this repentant man, to accept him back into the fellowship so that the enemy would not do any further damage in their unity. And that's a lesson for all of us, isn't it? Sin is real. Can we agree with that? 
even in the church, tragically. But church discipline is a good thing. Would you agree with that? Well, yeah, right, but it's not fun. It's painful, but it's necessary. It's a good thing. See, in the physical world, for example, there are times when we get hurt, sometimes severely. Anybody resonate? (laughs) In the emergency department at the hospital, the trauma docs and the nurses, they inflict pain, do they not? But the pain is necessary in order to facilitate healing. Same thing in the body of Christ. We all need help to live the way that Christ would have us live. Whether it be sexual immorality, idolatry, divisive spirit, pick a sin. We need to help one another overcome these things so that we can be healed. These things are so poisonous to the soul and harmful to the church. See, the Lord Jesus gave us a way to deal with the painful and often tearful process of church discipline. And when it's done right, church discipline is a glorious thing. The sinning brother or sister is brought to repentance. The church is made more pure and unity is restored. And God is glorified. And it truly is an awesome thing to be part of what the Lord Jesus is doing. He is building his church. But back to the story. With the good news of church discipline having done its work, there is still the battle for what I referred to earlier as Paul's disauthority. Remember the theme of 1 Corinthians. Disunity. And two hooks we can hang our thoughts on when we think of the Corinthian correspondence. First Corinthians is disunity. Second Corinthians is all about disauthority. Paul was going to now lay out his case for the authority that he had. And again, the authority that he had for building them up and not tearing them down. He reminds the Corinthians that the mark of a true spiritual leader is one of humility and hardship and horrendous, painful experiences. That's a true leader. And here's where the contrast is huge between Paul and these false teachers. See, the false teachers promoted themselves using all the tools of the day at their disposal to amass followers. They were flashy. They had it all together. But their teaching And even their lifestyle was, in Paul's words, demonic. And we're going to see that later on in the letter. Paul is going to lay that out and actually then begin to rightly accuse these false teachers. So in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul gave a description of the vast difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He delighted to tell them that the true work of God was God writing His ways upon the hearts of the Corinthians. And upon us as well. And Paul was grateful, as he said, to have a hand in this ministry. The life-giving, eternal, spiritual ministry is a thing of life that God used Paul to produce in their lives. And Paul would declare, you, Corinthians, are our work in the gospel. And that was different than the false teachers because they came in to try to wrench the, the Corinthians away. And Paul says, listen, you know, God has given me the authority and God is doing a work through me to you. And it was all because of Jesus. See, Paul was set free to serve the Lord in the freedom of the new covenant. And the Corinthians were as well. And all true followers 
of Christ. See, he described it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 17 and 18. He says, Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. From this comes, for, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. It is this spiritual reality that Paul stood on. The new, the new covenant and all that goes with it is what the true apostle thrived on in, and in contrast to the false teachers that the Corinthians encountered. It was this basis and incentive for Paul to push on regardless of what came his way. So in our passage for today, just covering four verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 4, we will see Paul's motive as to why he served the Lord the way that he did. Because Christ, by his Spirit, was in the process of transforming Paul's life from glory to glory. Paul was indeed free. And he was free to engage in authentic ministry with no pretense. And we're going to see his authenticity in verses 1 and 2. It mattered not to Paul how people would respond to him. He was going to remain faithful to the Lord, giving the gospel to sinners and serving divine truth to the saints. All of this so that God would be honored and glorified. Of utmost importance is Paul's motive for ministry. And why he served the Lord the way he did. Paul was undeterred in his task. He was absolutely unstoppable. And we know this as we read, as we read the Scriptures. Now, was Paul a super saint? He was not a super saint. He was just like us. He was a man of flesh and blood, just like we are. Paul was a man who needed Christ. And he was saved, just like many of us have already. So what made Paul the powerhouse that he was in the Lord? We're going to find that out today. And my encouragement and challenge to all of us is simply this, that we can be the same powerhouse for the Lord as Paul was in different ways, certainly. I don't know about you, but I haven't established, you know, the, the kinds of churches that Paul established all over the world. But we can be the same kind of powerhouse because the spirit that lived in Christ or in, in Paul is the same spirit that lives in us. And we're also going to see today that though Paul had been set free to serve the image bearers of God, he knew that there were many obstacles that tried to hinder him and his friends from accomplishing what the Lord wanted of them. And we're going to see Paul's awareness of an unseen enemy in verses 3 and 4. So let's look first at Paul's ministry motive. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. We find in the first part of the first verse, what fuels Paul's motivation to serve the Lord the way that he does. This is the heart of what makes Paul and his friends tick. See, they have received an assignment from God himself, sourced in his mercy. Paul and his friends never outgrew God's mercy extended 
to them. They knew the truth of what God had saved them from. Paul especially was very much aware of his natural condition before he became a Christian. In his B.C. days, he was separated from God. He was a son of wrath, ripe for judgment. He was on his way to eternal destruction, like every person who ever lived. All of us were like that, and maybe some are today. And there was only one person who wasn't like that, and that was the Lord Jesus. Everybody else in this boat. Paul knew that God did not have to save him. He did not have to then, nor does he have to now save anybody. Isn't that true? We know from Scripture that God's motivation to do anything is one thing, and that is to glorify himself. Now, God could glorify himself in a number of ways, couldn't he? He could glorify himself in displaying his wrath, showing his blazing purity and consuming all sin and sinners at the same time. He could have prepared hell, not only for the angels and the devil, but also for all of us. And he would be perfectly justified in doing so. But gloriously, God chose to display more of himself than only his wrath and blazing purity. He also chose to display his tender mercy by providing salvation. And that salvation is found in Christ alone. Paul discovered this, and he never got over it. And Paul, for him, no price was too great to pay, no task too menial, no sacrifice too great. Paul was profoundly grateful for God's salvation And he was going to show his gratitude by the way he lived, not just by the words that he spoke. It was out of his personal gratitude for for Christ that gave Paul daily renewed motivation to serve him. I imagine Paul waking up every morning with wide-eyed wonder, praising the Lord and wondering and anticipating what the day would hold in, in opportunities to serve the Lord. And in what days Paul could, ways that Paul could display his gratitude for God's gift of eternal salvation. That encourages me. It also challenges me. See, we're at the beginning of 2021. How many of us are looking ahead to this year and are convinced that only the happiest days are before us? <laughs> me neither. <laughs> and you know what? That's true for any year, isn't it? For any of us who've even lived a little bit of time, we know that every year can bring profound highs that only last a short period of time. And we also know that every year can bring profound lows, which often last much longer than the profound highs. Isn't that true? See, the key to not just to survive, but to thrive 2021 is not that we hang our expectations on good circumstances in this year, or in any year. See, if we do that, it's only going to lead us to disillusionment and even despair. But we are to renew and we're to refresh our minds and hearts in God's salvation found in Christ alone, regardless of what happens in our world. I think of the prophet Jeremiah and his, and his personal testimony about God's mercy. Remember, this is Old Testament, the weeping prophet as he literally watched his beloved Jerusalem being overrun by ruthless, bloodthirsty Babylonians. Jeremiah writes these words in Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. 
the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Don't you love those words? They're great. Now, the challenge, can we say that? That God's steadfast love, literally His covenant loyalty to His people, never ceases. Can we say that? Can you personally say that? Is that your personal testimony? Can we say with conviction that His mercies never come to an end? Can we say that His faithfulness is new every morning and that His faithfulness to you is great? If you cannot, why not? See, He has not changed. Has he? He forever remains the same. And it's been said, if God seems far away, guess who moved? See, the Lord continually invites us to draw to him, to come to him. And when was the last time you did that? Would to God that this would be our holy habit to draw near to the one whose mercies and his faithfulness are new continually. Now, I had to spend a little time here talking about Paul's motivation for serving the Lord because everything flows from that. Because of his profound gratitude for God's mercy and salvation, Paul now declares, so we don't lose heart. Literally, we don't lose our enthusiasm in our service for the Lord. Nothing could discourage Paul. Why? Because his motivation was not found in anything that ministry could give him. It was not found in ministry results. It was not found in his personal satisfaction or his happiness as he served God. That's not what motivated him. His motivation was God-given, found in his relationship with the Lord because of his mercy. Even as the lyrics of a song recorded a number of years ago, Talish, you may have heard this before, the world didn't give it to me and the world can't take it away. So let me offer us a challenge. Ongoing discouragement in the life of a Christian means that we have placed our hope in someone or something else than the mercy of the Lord and in the Lord Himself. See, the world cannot give joy, can it? The most it can offer us is happiness. And how quickly does that go away? And it most certainly did not or it cannot give mercy. We know that the world is cruel, isn't it? But now having said this, hear me well before we go on. Temporary discouragement is common for all of us. Would we agree? Temporary anxiety is common for all of us. But these things do not identify us, characterize us as an ongoing character trait in our lives as Christians. Discouragement and anxiety come to all of us. But as with any temptation to sin. We're all, we are to use the weapons and the tools the Lord has given us to combat it. As Paul told us in Philippians, what is the key to overcoming anything? It begins by exercising our will to rejoice where? In the Lord. Not rejoice in circumstances, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in who He is regarding the mercy that He's given us for salvation. And because Paul was so profoundly grateful for the Lord's mercy, he was able to live his life and to conduct his service to precious souls with authenticity. 
as we read in verse 2. Paul lived his life to please the Lord alone. He was not about to take shortcuts in his ministry by doing what the false teachers were doing. They were trying to win the Corinthians over to their ways with so many things that the world advocated for the false teachers. Paul and his fellow servants were not going to use disgraceful, underhanded ways to amass a following. They were not going to twist God's word and make it more palatable to the untrained. Instead, Paul and his friends were after one thing, to commend themselves to one's conscience in the plain teaching of God's word. Now, we know what a conscience is, don't we? Every one of us has one. It's that thing in our hearts and minds that tells us what's right and what's wrong. This was Paul's aim. But the aim of the false teachers was anything but. It could have been a focus on good works, since the false teachers probably were those who said that in order to become a Christian, you had to become Jewish. The false teacher's aim might have been a feel-good, mystical religion, or a whole host of things. But true Christianity aims at the heart, at the conscience. And how important is it for the church in general to heed these words? See, we as a church and the culture, not so much Grace United, my, my, my constant prayer is that we don't do this. But as a culture and church in general, we spend far too much time and energy and resources aiming at the entertainment factor and not at the conscience of people. Indeed, what does a true gospel deal with? Good feelings? Our best life now? What about our conscience? The writer to the Hebrews tells us that the most important thing a worshiper of God needs is a cleansed conscience. Now, there's a whole lot that we can and we should say about this, but we have to leave it right there because the clock is so unkind. But the bottom line is Paul's ways and the ways of the false teachers are poles apart. The false way was and still is putting a priority on what works and what makes people feel good. Tragically, the primary aim in many local churches today is one's emotions. Encourage them. Keep them coming back for more. Make them feel really, really good so they'll come back. But the true way was and still is the plain teaching of God's Word aimed at the conscience. So now having seen what Paul, what made him tick, he and his friends, let's now see just one of the several obstacles trying to stand in the way of accomplishing the ministry the Lord gave him. Today, we're going to deal with the unseen enemy. Paul calls him the God of this world. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, Paul says, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of those who don't believe, to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What was never far from Paul's mind was in his ministry was the working of the God of this world, the activity in the minds of those that don't believe. See, evil forces directed by Satan himself do an effective job at preventing non-Christians from seeing the truth. Described, as Paul does here, as the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, the very image of God. And what a description Paul gives here. 
both of the gospel and of the action that the enemy performs to prevent unbelievers from responding to it. Now, we can spend all day on spiritual warfare and what these verses are all about. But let me give you two points as we look at, these, at this spiritual battle over souls. The first point I want to say is that it has to do with the gospel itself. The gospel is proclaimed. It is to be communicated from one person to another. Here's how it works. The witness gives the gospel. It is plainly given to a precious soul aimed at the conscience. When it leaves the mouth of the witness and heard by the one without Christ, one of two things happens. Either it's received or it's rejected, right? This is a binary thing, received or rejected, one or the other. And whether one receives or rejects the gospel depends on the spiritual condition of the heart. That may seem like an obvious thing, and it is. But there's something absolutely crucial about this that we need to understand. It it is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And it's the second point I want to talk about. The Holy Spirit's precious ministry cannot be emphasized enough when we talk about the gospel, whether someone receives the Lord or not. And so I want us to turn to John 16, 8 to 11, to see the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what Jesus promised the ministry of the Spirit would do and what it was all about, why he would send him to us. Now, remember, the context of this is that Jesus was in the upper room spending one last meal, one last time with his men. He was getting ready to go away, as in like being crucified for the sins of the world. And now he's saying, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And I dare say that if the Holy Spirit had not been sent, no one would be saved. Pretty bold statement, but there's a reason for this. See, the Scripture gives us the condition of every unsaved person. Every one of us either is or was here, just like this. No one is righteous. Can we agree? All have become corrupt. We are dead in our sins. We are separated from God. That is the condition of a non-Christian, every non-Christian. I don't care how nice they are. A non-Christian's condition is this. The truth is, no one comes to God on their own. But now, the glorious ministry of the Holy Spirit has come. And again, if it was not for the Holy Spirit's ministry, no one would be saved. Here's how the Lord Jesus describes the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Again, John 16, 8 to 11. And he says, when he comes, Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, the sin of unbelief. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, righteousness by faith. Concerning judgment, Because the ruler of this world is judged, the sure knowledge of the danger the sinner is in if he or she does not repent and believe the gospel. In other words, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is a continuous conviction in the life of a nonbeliever. He continues to work on every heart of every person on the planet. Right now, the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction and saying, hey, you need Jesus as your Lord and Savior, open up. You need Him. He continues to convict. And amazingly, the Lord has given every one of us the ability to respond 
to his convicting work. This is the dignity that God has given every one of us. We have the ability to choose or to reject. We have the ability to make real choices when it comes to responding to the convicting ministry of the Spirit. Those who respond to his work see their need for Christ. And when they do, what happens? They will respond to the gospel. They will repent from their sin, and they will receive Christ as their Lord and Savior. But tragically, those who refuse to respond to the convicting work of the Spirit leave themselves open to the blinding work of the God of this world. Now, we need to understand this in degrees. Some people receive the salvation in Christ the very first time they hear the gospel. Maybe you were one of those. Apparently, Paul did. (laughs) But of course, when one gets knocked to the ground by the sheer majesty of the Son of God, it's a little hard to refuse. (laughs) But with others, it takes a while. And I think this is where, where many of us, if not most of us, either are or were. See, the danger is every time a person refuses to respond to the Spirit's conviction and he rejects the gospel, a spiritual blindness in increasing measure begins to happen. Another way to, quote, look at this is by way of the hardening of the heart. The more one refuses the Spirit's conviction and rejection of the gospel, the more blind and hardened their heart becomes. Now, we may be wondering at this point, can a person's heart get so hard and get so blind that they are unable to to repent and receive the gospel? And through a number of scriptures, I'm convinced that tragically, yes, that can happen. But however, a person is, every person is different, and God is sovereign. He knows. He alone knows the ultimate destiny of a person, whether they're going to receive Christ or not. You know, the old-timey preachers used to call it sinning away your day of grace. But on the other hand, as Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as in the fulfilling, fulfilling of, of His promise coming, uh, His coming to rule and reign and judge the world, as some count slowness. But He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The bottom line is here that since the Lord has not put any of us on that need-to-know roster concerning who has sinned away their day of grace or not, we must proclaim the gospel regardless of how a person responds. We must keep at it. And let's remember and never forget two things. First, the Holy Spirit has already gone before us. He's been at work convicting that person, that precious soul that's standing in front of you that you're witnessing to. And second, every person is in various stages of hardening and blindness. And so every time we encounter someone who needs Jesus, we are literally entering into an eternal battle for their soul. Plead with them. Proclaim it plainly. Aim for their conscience. This is what the Lord would have us do. And let me recommend the materials of a guy named Ray Comfort. And he wrote a book called The Way of the Master. And he tells us in this book that the conscience of one who needs Jesus must be addressed. Again, we could spend all day on these kinds of things. But when we present the gospel, we need to present it God's way. 
And finally, let me remind us of Paul's commitment to doing God's work God's way with full knowledge that the God of this world is also at work in this. Remember when we first began the Corinthian correspondence a long time ago? Paul entered the Corinthian town with the idea of presenting the gospel. And he said this in 1 Corinthians 2.2. He says, I want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. But what kind of message is this? What did Paul expect would happen to those who he would preach the gospel to? Did he expect that they would immediately just jump on and say, yes, I need that? Well, you tell me. Let me share with you what he said about it. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block, literally a scandalous thing to the Jew, and folly or moronic to the Gentiles. Now, did Paul expect a lot of people to come to Christ? Absolutely not. See, Paul knew beyond the shadow of a doubt that if anybody would repent and believe the gospel, it would be because of the power of God. It would not be because of clever gimmicks. It would not be repeat this prayer. It would, be to, it would not be to entice the people with the notion of having one's best life now. Because Paul never outgrew his gratitude for the mercy of God, because he aimed his gospel at the conscience of the people, because he proclaimed it as plain and straight as possible with sure knowledge that the Holy Spirit was working, that was how Paul fulfilled his ministry. And now it's our turn. As I mentioned last week, there are at least three major issues that have leapt from 2020 to 2021. Those three issues are COVID, racial tension, and what I see now is a fundamental transition of the kind of government that we're going to be living under. All three have converged on our country and our culture. Its effects have powerfully arrested millions of people. And with every issue, what is the cure? With COVID, even more than the disease itself, it's that fear that goes along with it. Isn't that true? Many people believe that getting COVID is an automatic death sentence. Racial tension is ratcheted up to a fever pitch. White supremacy, critical race theory, all of that serve to severely divide us. The lurch from our so-called experiment in representative form of self-government to that of socialism in ever-increasing degrees has panicked so many of us. Again, what is the cure? What is it? It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that sets people free from the fear of anything or anyone in creation so that the only one we fear is God alone. It is the gospel of Christ that brings severely divided people, regardless of the source of division, into harmony and unity with one another under the lordship of Jesus. It is the gospel that enables the church of Jesus Christ to thrive regardless of the system of government that the church is planted in. Think North Korea. So if the gospel is secure, who are the only people on the planet qualified to proclaim it? Christians, us. Listen. Do you hear him? Isaiah did. 
when he saw the Lord high on a throne, lifted up, when he saw the seraphim so aware of the majesty of God, they covered their faces with their wings, and he heard them continually calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. When Isaiah experienced the foundations of the thresholds shaking at the mighty voices of the angels at the temple, while the temple was filling with the smoke of his presence, Isaiah had a salvation moment. He pronounced, woe is me. I am undone. I deserve the wrath of God. I am a sinner. Is there any hope for me? My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. At that confession, a messenger flew from the altar and cleansed the prophet. He said, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? What was Isaiah's response? Here am I. Send me. My friends, have you experienced, have you experienced the mercy and forgiveness of God found in Christ alone? If you have, then you have the cure, the only cure for all of our ills. Because our ills lie not in our culture, but in the hearts of the men, the women, the young people who make up the culture. God is calling you and me who know Christ to proclaim his gospel. He's calling us to call all people to repentance from sin and faith in him. We are to proclaim it plain, aiming at the sinner's conscience. But when we proclaim him, we do it not because we are religious. We do it not because we're church folk. We do it not just so we can make the world a better place. We proclaim him because we have never outgrown the wonder of his mercy in saving us. As we look around the country, our world, may we make Jeremiah's testimony our own. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And with our hearts freshly kindled in awe and wonder as to how he could save you, how he could even save me, then let's faithfully following him, committing ourselves anew and afresh to him with no price too high, no task too menial, no sacrifice too great, all for the love of our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Lord, you've given us an incredible salvation. Your mercies are beyond description. Your mercies are great and they are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness to us. Lord, I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you even more for the power of your spirit who lives within us, who know you. Lord, I pray that you will place upon us an unrelenting burden of the hearts of those who don't know you. 
Lord, we have people, the vast majority of people in the world today do not know you, and they don't want to know you. I thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are right now convicting them of sin and righteousness and judgment. And I thank you, Lord, that you've given us the privilege, the awesome privilege and responsibility to give them the gospel that sets them free for eternity, like you've given us. Lord, help us to never get over the wonder of your mercy toward us in salvation. And I pray, Lord, that now that you will help us to give that gospel, that you'll give us opportunities to give the gospel to those who so desperately need it. So we commit ourselves to you to doing this very thing. And now, Father, as we turn our attention to the finishing up of the service, as we sing to you, help us once again, Lord, to sing with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. I pray, Father, for the giving, Lord, that you help us to give, Lord, knowing that we give to you, not because we have to, but because we get to. Help us, Lord, I pray that you help us to use these monies to advance the gospel here and around the world. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.